From Zechariah, we have uh, spent several months in the last part of Zechariah, and uh, we're in chapter 14, finishing up. Let's just read from uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 11, <clears throat> down to the end of the chapter. And people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will, will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. They will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Jim Kelly, would you lead us in prayer? <clears throat> that it's true and uh, it's delivering and uh, Lord we thank you that uh, there's great liberty in the truth of God and so we pray that you would take your word today and speak it to our hearts pray you would take this written word and make it alive and real that we would be able to walk in the truth this week we ask for your hand of mercy to be upon Charles as he speaks we pray that
Well, some of you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, and we've been looking at the prophecy of Zechariah. And we have seen here in the 14th chapter of Zechariah, uh, as is often the case, that um, there may be some of these things that were fulfilled historically down through the years. But many times the prophecies of the Old Testament, even though they had a beginning fulfillment of sorts historically, yet they pointed ahead to a bigger fulfillment later on. And uh, when you look in chapter 14, you see uh, repeated phrases that are brought up in the New Testament and tied in with the last day. For example, in verse 5, the end of the verse, the Lord, O my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. And in verse 6, in that it will come about in that day there'll be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. <clears throat> in verse 7, it'll be a unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night. And verse 8, living waters will flow out. All of these things are referred to again even in, in the book of Revelation, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. And the same is true of the phrase that we looked at last week in verse 11, and that is, there will be no more curse. We see this same thing come up again in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible. There will be no more curse. And uh, this is purely a negative statement. But oh, how much is tied up in this negative statement, no more curse. First of all, we saw that it implies that right now there is a curse. And uh, the foundation of our worldview as Christians, we need to realize this world as we now see it is not normal. Something has gone wrong, and the Christian... Uh, worldview and the biblical worldview says this is not the way things have always been. Now every other religion has to somehow figure out you've got to start and take this world as being normal and figure out what in the world has happened. And uh, if this world is normal, there is no explanation for the situation that we find ourselves in. But the Bible says no, the world is not normal. Something has happened. The world's under a curse. There's a curse that's resting upon this world. And what happened was is that men have turned away from God and things are all out of whack. And uh, the amazing thing is is that we see as much beauty remaining as we do and as much goodness as we do see. Uh, that's due to the restraining grace of God that has kept things from getting as bad as they would be if he just took his hand off. Uh, every single one of us could be and would be a Hitler if it weren't for the restraining grace of God. And so there's a curse resting upon the world, <clears throat> but he says in that day there will be no more curse. And then just to say it again in the negative, uh, as it says in Revelation 21, there will no longer be any mourning or any sorrow, or any tears, or any death. The former things, the old things, the first things have passed away. And uh, we looked last week at some of the many, many things that relate to the curse. Everything from disease, to drought, to confusion. Brings that out specifically in Deuteronomy 28. Confusion is a result of the curse. Bewilderment of heart, it says, is a result of the curse. 
And uh, a little later in Deuteronomy 28, it says, A trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. All those things are a result of the curse resting on this world. Confusion, despair of soul, bewilderment of heart. Now those things are not normal. It's not normal for people to feel those things. That's a result of the fall. The, the same way when we think about death, it's not normal. Death is something that does not exist in the human race apart from sin and would not exist apart from sin. And so all of these uh, alienations that we feel in our heart and these things that we know we sense something's wrong, even from childhood, uh, people who never, and think of this, there's multitudes of children growing up all over the world in the midst of all this suffering and misery that never have the explanation given, look, uh, man has sinned against God, but in our hearts we know anyway. And so he says here, <clears throat> in that day there will be no more curse. Uh, for God's people, every one of those things will be completely and totally taken away. And we read in Revelation and in chapter 7 and in chapter 21, it says God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. By contrast, those who oppose Christ will undergo the most horrible of plagues and destruction. And the language that's used here, I believe, is, is symbolical. I don't think it's talking about uh, some nuclear holocaust or something like that. And I explained this last time. He talks about this plague being upon the camels and the horses. Well, I don't think in a nuclear war they're going to be using camels and horses. But the idea is, is that as bad as you can describe anything, any kind of a plague, God describes the plague that will be the curse that will be upon those who oppose Him. And so we looked at that and uh, that description in verse 12 and following last week also. We come now this morning then to verse 16 through 19. And the last three verses... 17, 18, and 19, we touched on last week when we were considering the curse and the plague upon those who reject the gospel. So today then, I want to center our attention on verse 16. He says, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Now, You've got to realize this is in language that the Jews were familiar with. That's the way all the prophecies of the Old Testament were. Uh, they used the language of that period. Uh, it says in Malachi, for example, here it's the very next book of the Bible. If you just turn over here in Malachi, talking about the coming of Christ, uh, it says in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1, <clears throat> Just look at this, and I, this is a little bit of an aside, but it'll show you here. God says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who was that talking about? Well, it's quoted in the New Testament as referring to John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, saith the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi 
and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, if you were just reading that as a Jew, you'd say, look, Christ is going to come and purify the Levitical priesthood so that these Levites can offer sacrifices in righteousness. That's what it says. The fact is, when you, you find out as far as the literal sons of Levi, they were put out of the priesthood completely. Christ came of a different order of priesthood entirely. He was the order of Melchizedek. And the literal Jewish physical sons of Levi are no longer even priests. So what's it mean when it says that Jesus will come and purify a priesthood that can offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God? Well, you read in the New Testament, in 1 Peter it says, He has made us to be priests, a spiritual kingdom of priests, who can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he has purified the sons of Levi, and the sons of Levi is every Christian, <coughs> every believer. David, could I have you get me some water? I sensed this morning right before I got up here that my voice was kind of weak, so I should have been prepared. So he will he will purify the sons of Levi. That's talking not about physical Jews, but it's talking about <coughs> sorry. Quickly. Wes is my man for cough drops. Thank you. <clears throat> when it says he will purify the sons of Levi, a Jew reading that would think that it's talking about something physical and Jewish. But when you get to the fulfillment of it, it's talking about something spiritual and universal. It has to do with us offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, by the same token, when a Jew would read verse 16 about these nations coming up and keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, he'd have ideas in his mind that were probably pretty far off. And so we'll look at that today as we go on. But notice here, it says in verse 16 that it will come about in that day that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So here's a picture not just of Judaism, but of the nations from all over the world coming to worship the Lord. Now that is a picture that we meet with a number of times in the Old Testament prophets. And uh, the picture is the picture of the nations, the Gentiles, and that's us, going up to worship the Lord. And gathering around him. Let's look back, and we saw this already way back when we were in chapter 8 of Zechariah. Let's go back to that chapter 8 and verse 20. This same prophecy in a little bit different way. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come. Even the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, Let us go at once 
to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, with verses like these in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's amazing, isn't it, that the Jews couldn't believe that God would ever save any Gentiles. I mean, you think in the New Testament when Peter uh, was asked to go to the house of Cornelius, he couldn't believe it that God would ever bring in the Gentiles. And part of the reason was they had in their head the idea that all these Gentiles were going to become Jews and keep the law of Moses. But you see it in other... For example, in the book of Joel, he says what? It will come about in that day that whosoever, anybody, anywhere from any nation, whosoever will what? Keep the law of Moses and become a Jew? No, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The way men are saved is not by keeping the law of Moses or becoming Jews. He says, in that day, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by joining a church. You're not saved by having the sacraments done over you. You're saved by calling individually, calling on the name of the Lord. And so... It was all there in the Old Testament, but we have a hard time understanding it even now looking back, and so we can sympathize with the Jews. But anyway, God said there was a day coming when these great nations were going to stream up to Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, and call on the name of the Lord. Let's look at uh, one more passage on this, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you see the very same thing in Zechariah 14. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, you remember in Hebrews, it says we have come to Mount Zion. If you're a Christian, you've come to Mount Zion. You say, well, I never have been over to the Holy Land. No, it's not talking about that. The Holy Land is something spiritual. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So many peoples will come and say that, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into printing hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, this has begun to happen, but we're not there yet, are we? And so many of these prophecies, they they tell of what begins spiritually right now in this life. We see the same thing in the New Testament. The kingdom of God has already come, but it hadn't come yet. And so here we are already. These things are true, but they're not yet totally fulfilled. And that will happen in the eternal order. 
Very similar to this teaching in Zechariah 14. One more passage on this, and I know we're looking, we're moving around looking at a bunch of scriptures, but Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now look at verse 24. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. You see this? The same idea. The nations streaming to the Lord, the Gentiles. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. So on. So back to Zechariah 14 then. Uh, Again, in this prophecy of Zechariah, representation of the nations going up to Jerusalem. Now again, we've got to be reminded, we are the Gentiles. When it talks about these Gentiles and uh, heathen dogs, it's talking about us. And we get in on some of the crumbs from the Master's table. But what will will we be doing? What will we Gentiles be doing along with every true Jew? Now this is important to realize. Every true Jew is a Christian. Every true Jew right now is a Christian. That's what... That's what the Bible says in Romans 2. Every true Jew is a Christian, and every true Christian, every Christian is a true Jew. That's what it says in Romans 2. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. He's a Jew who is one inwardly. That's what Paul says. So, As Gentiles, we go up and we will worship. And so what is it that we're doing? Uh, What will we be doing? What are we doing right now? And what will we be doing uh, through all eternity? Well, two things. First of all, he says that we will worship the king. And secondly, he says we'll celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. So we want to look at these two things. Um, these things, just like we saw in Isaiah, they've begun already, but they'll be fulfilled and perfected in heaven. And so what, what will we be doing, both now and through all eternity? First of all, we will worship the King, the Lord of hosts. You remember, uh, back in verse 9, we saw that in that day the Lord will be King over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. So, <clears throat> worshiping the king. Now, I don't know much about heaven, but I know this. A lot of heaven is going to be worshiping the king. You don't need to turn to these, but let me just read them to you. Uh, some of the description of heaven. 
And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, that's the King, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou didst create all things, and because of Thy will they existed and were created. And again, when He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing, that takes in a lot, doesn't it? Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's how he sums it up. He says any of the nations that are left, they're going to come and worship too. So you see this picture of Jew and Gentile worshiping before the throne, worshiping the king. One more passage. It's described in this way. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And as I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. You see? The sound of many waters. Whenever we've been there at the ocean, uh, it really does amaze you, I mean, from time to time, how loud it is. I mean, it is incredibly loud. That's just one little stretch. And uh, the same way with uh, even small streams going over over rocks. I remember uh, down at Gates' farm there, how loud that little stream was out the back of your uh, of that house there. Now, he says, like the sound of many waters and mighty peals of thunder, <laughs> the voices of Christians worshiping the Lord. Can we imagine this? Thousands of thousands, that's millions, Myriads upon myriads around the throne worshiping the Lord. Now this is the picture the Bible gives us of what's going to be. And uh, these recurring themes in Zechariah and Isaiah and clear on up and then repeated again in the book of Revelation. Worshiping the King. 
But the second thing it mentions here, it says we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what is what does this mean, that we will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? Let's just turn back to uh, one of the passages in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23, uh, where this Feast of Tabernacles was instituted. <clears throat> Leviticus 23. In verse 33, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th of the seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation, you shall do no laborious work of any kind, so on. It goes on down here. And then in verse, we won't read all this, but in verse 40. Uh, Two, you shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know. Now this is why. So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to know that this this Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, by the time of Christ, it was actually the big celebration in Israel. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I think, well, the Passover, that was such a big event. This was the big event. This is the one that was the most important in their minds. Or you might say the highlight of the Jewish year was this Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it was also called the Feast of Ingathering because it happened right after the time of harvest, when the harvest was gathered in. And uh, everybody was happy, everybody could rejoice, the harvest was in, and they could relax, they didn't have to work. And they took basically what you call a week-long camp meeting is what they have. And they built these booths or tabernacles. Now, what was that about? Well, because the people <clears throat> had lived in temporary dwellings through the wilderness. And so they built these tabernacles or booths out of branches and celebrated this camp meeting. Now, this Feast of Tabernacles was both a remembrance and a reminder. As a remembrance, the people looked back to how God had delivered them, protected them uh, during the wilderness wanderings and uh, the time when they had lived in these booths and especially God's miraculous provisions for them in the wilderness, water from the rock and so on. As a reminder, the people were forced to remember every year that actually we're just strangers and pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. And actually, uh, we shouldn't get too comfortable even now in this world. Now, now think of this. Right after the harvest, when everything is in the barn, and you're just comfortable and tempted to settle back, you know, and say, soul, take your ease. You know, I've got many goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry, you know, relax. God says, now now that you've got all this good stuff in the barn, 
I come out here and live in tabernacles as a reminder how temporal and fleeting and passing away this is. It was amazing, wasn't it? Right after the harvest. Um, Albert Barnes said this. He says, At the time when Israel rejoiced in the good gifts of the year, God bade them express and act their fleeting condition in this life. It must have been a striking confession of the slight tenure of all earthly things when their kings and great men, their rich men and those who lived at ease had all at the command of God to leave their sealed houses and dwell for seven days in rude booths. I mean, the richest men out there living in these little huts. Constructed for the season, pervious in some measure to the sun and wind with no fixed foundation and to be removed when the festival had passed. So here they were, everybody out there saying, look, we're nothing but strangers and pilgrims. One, one Jewish rabbi, and I was amazed at the insight here, he says, whoso begins to think himself a citizen in this world and not a foreigner, him God biddeth leaving his ordinary dwelling to remove into a temporary lodging in order that leaving these thoughts he may learn to acknowledge that he is only a stranger in this world and not a citizen in that he dwells in a stranger's hut, and so should not attribute too much to the shadow of his beams, but dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. I mean, that house you're living in, that you'll go home today and, and sleep in tonight, that is a stranger's hut. Somebody else is going to get that. So don't attribute too much to the shadow of those beams, but dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, as Christians... Just like with this thing of worship, we're worshiping the king right now. Well, we're also celebrating the Feast of Booze right now. Now, <clears throat> all the time, spiritually, Christians are to be doing that. <clears throat> How do we do it? Well, the Christian life is a life lived in tabernacles. We are aliens, we're strangers and pilgrims in this world. And if we start thinking of this world as our home and kind of permanent, we're in trouble. We're passing through. First Peter 2.11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, or as aliens, sojourners, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And uh, another description in the book of Hebrews, let me read it to you. Uh, of the life of faith, this is what it says. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It says a little later, we have here no continuing city. There's nothing, you know, the Romans even marked their time, A.U., the year of the city. They mark their time from the founding of Rome. Well, the Bible says we don't have any continuing city. Rome's not going to last forever. And uh, there is a city that will last forever, and that's the one that we're looking for. So the way we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles right now, we deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for the blessed hope. Looking for the appearing of the Lord. <clears throat> Paul says it another way uh, in 1 Corinthians. 
he says uh, he says those who buy ought to be as though they did not possess and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away now that's the attitude a general attitude of life celebrating the feast of tabernacles all through this life well you say I can understand that for this life but how in the world can we celebrate the feast of tabernacles in heaven because we are going to have a permanent dwelling place there we do belong there how can you celebrate the feast of tabernacles there well I think we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles all through heaven. That's going to be one of the big things. Spiritually speaking, because you're going to be remembering, it's going to be a feast of remembrance of God's deliverances in the wilderness. How He brought us through this wilderness of this life. And uh, the stories that can be told will be myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of stories that can be told of God's deliverance and provision through the wilderness of this life. When we get to heaven, we will look back and see that God has led us through a great and terrible wilderness. I'm quoting from Deuteronomy 8.15, with its fiery serpents and scorpions, a land of exceeding drought where no water is. Every Christian has been led through that. And throughout eternity, we will be proclaiming and rejoicing and remembering the goodness of God in bringing us through the wilderness and getting us safe to Canaan's land. What are some of the things that we will be celebrating in heaven? Well, we'll celebrate God delivering us from all of our enemies, for one thing. And that's specifically brought out in the Old Testament in a number of places. They... You know it's not chance that God allowed them to face these things. This happened as, a, as an example to us as spiritual types and pictures of what Christians have to go through, remember? So they're under Pharaoh and bondage. Living in Egypt, that's the way it is for every person before they're converted. You come through a crisis and you're delivered out of Egypt. And then you have to go through a wilderness before you finally get to the promised land. And you've got to cross a river to get into the promised land. See, all of that, none of that is chance, beloved. All that is pictures. God giving us pictures of what we are doing. Now, what was the reality that he says about that whole journey through the wilderness? Well, one reality was, he says, those enemies are bigger than you are, and they'll destroy you if it weren't for me. And the fact is, Every one of us here today, if you're a Christian, you face enemies that would destroy you. You'd be, you'd be in the gutter in a very short time if it weren't that God was continually delivering you from your enemies. We don't realize how much sometimes. I mean, we've got enough stuff left inside of us to destroy us. And uh, God, is, can, He says, you're going to go out and you'll see enemies greater and mightier than you. Don't be afraid of them. I'm going to enter in, I'll, I'll come into the situation and I will destroy them little by little in front of you. And um, I think that in heaven we will get a glimpse of the enemies that we were delivered from in a way that we have no idea right now. And there will be rejoicing throughout eternity as we look back 
celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, rejoicing God. Look what God did. He preserved us in the wilderness from all these enemies. What else? Well, we'll, we will rejoice forever and recount forever how God provided for us supernaturally in the midst of a barren wasteland. Water from the rock, food, provision. He says, your clothes didn't wear out on you. God led you all the way, providing for you. And you remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock that they drank from was Christ. And the water came out of the rock right out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you say, well, I'm living in a wasteland. Yeah, you are. This whole world's a wasteland. But we can get supernatural provision for our spiritual sustenance supernaturally daily from heaven. And we'll look back someday and, and marvel at the provisions God has done for us. And another thing that is specifically brought out a lot in the Old Testament is that we will we'll look back and marvel at how God led us. That comes out repeatedly. He led you through this waste howling wilderness. He led you through. And we talk about the wilderness wanderings, and I even use that term myself, but it's really it wasn't wanderings. I mean, whatever the, you have a cloud that's sit, you know, right there and it tells you whether to stay two days or three days or a month, and then it moves over here and you follow it. Is that wandering? God leading them through the wilderness. And uh, again, I, I think we don't have much of an idea at all how much we're being led, how our lives, our paths are being directed by little insignificant events. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? So what's going to happen? Well, Zechariah says there's a day coming when not just the Jews, but the whole world, all nations. And it's already begun now, but it's going to be completed in heaven. We're going to gather around the throne of God and celebrate an eternal feast of tabernacles, looking back at all the things God has done for us and going on walking with Him in the future. I want to read one more parallel passage to this. Just to, uh, This whole study has given me a little bit more of a feel for how much the Old Testament prophets parallel each other. They say things in different ways. It's all referring to the same reality. And so I want to read a passage from Isaiah in closing. Um, let me just read it to you and then I'll give you the reference. This is what God says. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Now God's talking Tell them there in Isaiah, there's a time and the time is coming. I'm going to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Uh, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. That's what happened when the gospel started going out. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. 
some of us have gotten here in a lot of different ways, <laughs> sometimes on litters and mules, but you get there. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, he says these people, converts are going to be brought. Remember what Paul said? I'm offering up these converts as an offering to the Lord. For I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. See the other side of the coin? That's those verses in Zechariah 14 of the curse on some. But uh, amazing. And these phrases taken up in the New Testament. It's talking about the nations coming up to worship the Lord. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Well, you wonder how much uh, these men like Zechariah and Isaiah realized of what they were saying. They They probably didn't realize very much, but they knew this. The nations are going to come up and worship the Lord. They did know that. And uh, that is happening right now. People from every tribe, tongue, kindred, nation are already beginning to worship the King, and one day it will be complete. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we're amazed at uh, how you set up the Old Testament with all types of shadows and pictures and types and prophecies, uh, telling of the things that were coming. And uh, we just thank you. We thank you for this book of Zechariah and all that you revealed to Zechariah, how that even things like the king coming, riding on a donkey, sold for 30 pieces of silver, all these different things that are in this book. And we thank you too for this prophecy that speaks uh, directly about every person here who's a Christian, where you said that we would come up and worship the King and celebrate in a way that the Jews really never could celebrate it. We will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We're doing it right now and we will do it in eternity as we look back and see all the way that you led us in the wilderness and the way that you made us be dependent upon you. Lord, we know you could satisfy and meet needs much more quickly than you do, but you said the Lord your God was testing you and teaching you that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And... um, we just we thank you for the richness of what you've said to us in your word. Pray that we might have the reality of these things in our lives right now. Lord, we think of the 
terrible description that you've given <clears throat> of the opposite side of being under the curse and being under the plague, under the judgment. We pray, Lord, that you'd not let those who are hearing this today remain under that curse. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's be dismissed. We have our meal together, and uh, everyone's welcome to stay, fellowship together.